I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today, we talk with Diane Meyer. She's a physician, a visionary, and a pioneer with a goal of expanding palliative care. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. What is palliative care? What is hospice? I will tell you that doctors are just as confused about the difference as the regular people are. Um, And it's understandable why people are confused, because for many years, all we had in this country was hospice. And hospice was defined by a federal benefit, a law that was written about 25 years ago that said you can only get this kind of care if you're within a very few months of death, and two doctors certify that you're within a few months of death, and you agree to sign away your rights to regular insurance coverage. You give up your regular insurance coverage in return for the hospice care. And of course, many people, A, we can't predict who's going to die soon until very close to death. And B, many people are benefiting from disease treatment at the same time that they need care focused on their comfort and quality of life. Now, this is not hospice's fault. This is the people who wrote the benefits fault. Hospice has got locked into this strange, restricted delivery model. But because of those restrictions, it was clear that there were many, many more people who were not dying predictably or not dying soon, who had enormous quality of life needs, pain, symptoms, stresses, family caregiver burden, confusion about what to expect in the future, worry about will they ever be able to get back to their old life. And because of that gap that hospice was not allowed to meet because of federal law, the field of palliative care grew up to do what hospice does, but without the restrictions. And so the short way of describing it is all hospice is palliative care, but not all palliative care is hospice. So hospice is available to you if you have a disease you're going to be cured from. A good example is leukemia or lymphoma, which nowadays are curable in about three quarters of patients because we have new treatments Or if you have a disease that may last for 10 or 20 years, like heart failure or emphysema or kidney problems, these are serious diseases that will probably eventually contribute to your death, but that people live with for a very, very long time. And the goal of palliative care for those people is to help those added years be worth having. Um, be comfortable, um, enable people to do the things that matter most to them. And then the third category of people who need palliative care are those whose disease is getting worse and worse. They're losing more and more function. They're more and more burdened by symptoms and stress. Those people are probably coming near the end of their life, but it could be a year off. It could be two years off. It could be three months off. 
when it's three months off, that's time to refer to hospice. Right, exactly. Individuals in the healthcare industry do not fully understand that palliative care and hospice are subspecialties, just like a cardiologist and oncologist. And and how do how do we in the palliative and hospice industry change this perception among our colleagues? Well, I think you phrased it really well, which is that palliative medicine is a subspecialty just like cardiology or gastroenterology or pulmonology. Um, And what that means is that people who practice in the field, in medicine, this is, do a, a lot of additional training, at least a year of additional training after residency training, so that they really know what they're doing. And why is that important? I mean, we are talking about a patient population that is by far the sickest and most complex in our entire society. And this notion that somehow anyone can manage this without additional training is a little naive. I mean, we are talking about people who often have more than one serious illness at the same time. For example, it's really common for people to have diabetes, hypertension, heart disease, and cancer, and symptoms from all of those different things, and drug interactions from all of the treatments of those things, and four or five different doctors treating each one of those different problems separately, and not often talking to each other, and the poor patient in the family in the middle trying to be the quarterback. Palliative medicine specialists are trained to take care of exactly that kind of patient. That's what we do all day. That's what we do for a living. It's not a burden. It's what we do. So, of course, the quality of care is better because the training is focused on that kind of complex patient. Um, And that's why the additional training is necessary. In my experience, what I'm seeing is, you know, of course, the H word hospice. People mention that and people get scared. But I also feel like palliative care is starting to have a little bit of the same reputation. And how do we change that? How do we get everybody on on board with conversations with patients to say this is the next step? Let's not blame the doctors because uh, we doctors are just doing exactly what we were trained to do. And we were not trained to have conversations with our patients and our and their families about what to expect as this disease progresses, about the fact that it will progress much of the time, that there's no fix, there's no miracle cure, there's living with serious illness, living as well as we can with serious illness, but that there comes a point when the focus of care really needs to be on the patient and the family, ideally in their home, focusing on supporting them so that they're not in terrible pain, not struggling to catch their breath, that the family understands what their role is and how to help their loved one, um, and that the mainstream healthcare system is not structured or resourced to provide that level of support. So because doctors were never trained, literally, to have conversations like this to help explain to patients and families what to expect in the future, what their options are, what the pros and cons are, what the benefits of hospice are. Hospice is one of the best things Medicare does, and it suffers from this terrible reputation. And it is so frequent when I have patients and they get to hospice, they say, Dr. Meyer, why didn't you refer me here months ago? I mean, this is, this is what we needed. And people are so relieved 
to have the support that they haven't had and to get their questions answered 24-7. A pain crisis at 3 in the morning, you call and somebody calls back and comes to the house. That doesn't happen in the rest of the healthcare system. The other thing I think many patients and families don't realize is that you can go in and out of hospice. So you can go into hospice, get all the great stuff, people coming to your house, helping you, equipment, meds, uh, support for your family, um, all sorts of things you can't get anywhere else in the healthcare system. But if, for example, a new treatment comes up, that hospice literally can't afford to deliver, you can come off hospice, get that treatment, and go back on. There is no rule against that. And I think most doctors don't know that. I think most patients don't know that. So really, I'm saying to the public, this is your right. This is your benefit as a Medicare beneficiary or as anyone with insurance. Why wouldn't you make use of it? That's a great point. That's a, that's a really great point that that we need to really push that forward as well. You know, you're talking about physicians not trained, having conversations. And last night when we were with uh, the local healthcare uh, providers in our community, you talked a little bit about your first day as a physician and it imprinted on me. Uh, and I, I would love for you to share that because I was so shocked by that. Yeah. So the story I was telling was about my very, very first day, a Saturday morning in July, as an intern after graduating from medical school. So it was the first time I showed up with MD after my name on the name tag. And I got there at eight in the morning, because that's when we were supposed to get there, and was a complete nervous wreck, because it's completely different being a medical student than being the one who's responsible. <laughs> Um, and they handed me this beeper, which at that time was like huge, like <laughs> two cigarette packs in size. This is a different era, um, which I clipped onto my belt. And within two minutes, the thing went off. And it went off with the special noise that it makes when there's a cardiac arrest, you know, when someone needs CPR. And it was my patient, and it was my patient who was in the coronary care unit, the CCU, which is an intensive care unit for people with heart problems. So everyone starts running, because that's what you do when you get the code. You run to the place. So five minutes after arrival, I'm running to the CCU. And I get there, and I see eight or ten people surrounding the bed of someone who looks like he's in his 80s or 90s, and they're pumping on his chest and they're putting a ventilator tube in his throat and they're trying to stick lines in his neck and in his groin so that they can administer medications and they're running uh, EKG strips to see mm. what rhythm he's in and someone yelled at me you know because that's what you do during codes you yell so that people <laughs> hear you to put in a central line which is a, an IV that goes in the neck, which is perhaps easier to find when um, it's a crisis. It's an emergency. And, of course, I had never put in a central line and didn't know how and had to say in front of all my colleagues, I can't do that. I don't know how to do that. Um, and so I stood there and watched everybody press on this poor guy's chest for another 20 minutes or so. And then the cardiology fellow, who was the most senior person there, did what we call called the code, meaning he said stop, because we weren't succeeding at bringing the patient back to life. And 
I vividly remember everyone just put all their stuff down, put their stethoscopes back around their neck and walked out, walked away from the bedside and out the door of the CCU. No one, including my own resident, stopped to tell me what this was all about. Why had we done this? What what was the patient's story? And they walked right past the patient's wife who was sitting outside in a chair outside the door. And no one stopped to talk to her. And my memory of him, you know, he was, you know, had no clothes on. He wasn't covered. He had, there was blood all over him and all over the bed and EKG strips and bloody gauze and, um, equipment from trying to get the lines in and the defibrillator paddles. The one thing I did do is cover him because it seemed so undignified. And then I I realized I had another 30 patients I had to go meet and take care of. So I walked out too and didn't stop and speak to his wife. I didn't know how, but the, what I, when I look back on what I ended up doing in my career, I think that experience was determinative for me mm-hmm. because it was at, at a point when I was unprotected psychologically from what I was seeing. And so it was very traumatic. I dreamed about it for a long time. Oh, wow. um, his image still flashes into my head. I think a lot of what I'm doing now is to apologize to him oh, in some wow. way or to make up to him. But I think what I learned from it is is my experience was not unusual. This is how we're teaching young doctors and nurses that this is what the practice of medicine is. And the message was my job is to do everything humanly possible to prevent death. And this was an 89-year-old patient with end-stage terminal heart failure. There was no way this procedure was going to help him. No one had spoken to him or his wife about what was happening. And his death was not only profoundly undignified. Um, you know, I, I don't want to use too big of words, but it was something like medieval torture. Oh, wow. And why, why was that good medical care? And why was it good medical care to walk by his wife and not talk to her? I guess we thought the nurses would take care of it, and hopefully they did. But that's a very profound message to a young person training to be a physician. Do you believe some of that still goes on today? Or do you think we have made small moves to be better? Yes, we have made small moves to be better. However, it is still the case that the great majority of young physicians and nurses, both in medical and nursing school and in their graduate medical and nursing education, do not get any attention to how to talk to patients and families about the meaning of this illness and what to expect. It's a procedure. It requires training. It's not something you roll out of bed at age 25 knowing how to do. We wouldn't send a young physician in to do a neurosurgical procedure without training and practice and supervision and a lot of feedback and study. Yet we send a young 25-year-old physician in to have a very serious conversation about what this disease means and what the future holds with zero training. Hmm. And no wonder doctors avoid it. Oh, sure. It's incredibly challenging and it requires training just like any complex medical procedure does. How did you get your training? And 
what are some tips that are easy to remember for physicians in our local community nationally in the United States that are so simple that we often forget? These are really great questions. And and I, I guess I want to reframe your question a little bit because I actually think the power sits in the hands of the patient and the family. And I want to reframe how you describe this as end of life because the fact is, unless you define end of life as the last 10 years of life, and maybe you do, um, but I think when a lot of regular people think about end of life, they're thinking about the last few days. We are talking about living with as long as possible and as well as possible, one and often more serious medical conditions. Most people have more than one, and especially when you get past your 80s. You know, nobody escapes without multiple chronic conditions. So the role of patients and families and their clinicians is to say, here's the reality. How do we make the best of this? How do we find out what matters most to you Kimberly, what is most important to you? Maybe it is working in your garden. Maybe it is you're a fighter and you want the latest and greatest technology and damn it, you want that heart transplant. Maybe it is that you want to take a cruise with your kids and your grandkids and you want to do that while you're well enough to do it. How do I know what's most important to you as your doctor unless I ask you? I can't know. People in our community and nationally, they too have a hard time bringing up these conversations. And you're right. It's not one person's entire fault. And we have to normalize this conversation because we're all going to die. Yeah. I think the other thing I would say to you is that actually, yes, we're all going to die, but that's not what people are thinking about. And nor should they be. They should be thinking about how to live while they're still here. Right. And I think we who work in palliative care, as well as those who work in hospice, need to stop talking about death and dying. We need to start talking about living, about how to live as well as possible and as long as possible. Because I think when we professionals in the industry talk about it, we're thinking three years, five years when we say end of life or death and dying. We're thinking the long haul and what people need. When we say that to the public, they're thinking brink of death. And so we're using language that doesn't really match, like we're ships passing in the night here. What we're talking about is living as well as possible for as long as possible. Every time we bring the death dying industry language into it, we are not talking to people in a place that they are. And if we're not talking to people in the place that they are, why would they hear us? I believe that I myself take lessons and life lessons from individuals who have died and I apply them to my own life because they have this rare point of view. It's those moments, those connections that we have with individuals, the family. It's not about titles. It ends up being about testimonies, about these things that that really have shaped my years in my late 30s and 40s because I'm starting to realize what is important. The privilege for those of us working in the field is is not only do we witness incredible love um, between people um, that that is expressed in a profound way, genuine way that you know doesn't happen in the press of the day to day. Also, courage and what it means to be human, what it means to be in relationship, what it means to be in a family really expresses itself powerfully when it's clear that time is not infinite 
what what I do think is really important is to remember that we health professionals are often in doing this work because we have seen very bad experiences and we don't want that to happen to anyone else, such as my experience on the first day of my internship. But that is not what is driving our patients and our families. They don't know what the future is going to hold. They are trusting that their doctor is going to tell them and that if the doctor's not talking about it, it must not be relevant. And so it, it is like kind of shadow boxing. You know, it, we're talking on different scripts. We're not in the same play. And I think the thing that patients and families can do in addition to saying, let's talk about what I can expect in the future so that I can make plans, is when a doctor offers a treatment is to say, what is, you know, what is your estimate of how likely this treatment is to really make a difference for me? Ask. Because um, what I've learned over the years is that we doctors, we really love and care about our patients. And when we only have a very narrow set of skills to show how much we love and care about our patients, we may end up offering treatments that won't help that may in fact hurt or shorten people's lives because it is the only thing we know how to do to show that we really care about our patient. So the patient has to come back and say, you know, Dr. Meyer, is is this surgical procedure or is this fifth line chemotherapy or is this device, What's what can I expect as a result of this? What are the odds? You know, is it 90% odds that it's going to help me or is it 1% odds that it's going to help me? Help me understand whether I should do this or not. Um, Help me understand the risks as well as the likelihood of benefit. The most interesting thing that's happening across the United States right now is this really big awareness push about advanced care planning. So what do you feel and how do you feel that advanced care planning can help the community um, and the individual to start thinking about these in a more positive way of let's design how if something would happen, what you would do. So talk to me a little bit about how you you see and the effects in your industry. How is advanced care planning impacting that? So um, first of all, I'm older than you. And I have a long-term perspective on this issue of advanced care planning. And we have been around and around and around the block on this. And, uh, you know, what do they say that the, the best definition of stupidity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? So that's how I feel about advanced care planning. <laughs> and the reason I think advanced care planning is us talking to ourselves and really not relating to what how the public thinks about this, is that advanced care planning assumes that we can see the future and make a decision about a future eventuality that we cannot make because we cannot know what the future is going to hold and we cannot make a good decision about an unknown future with a million contingencies, you know, that are cannot be anticipated. And this notion that somehow, in fact, patients can know now, today, when they're healthy, what they would want in an unknown 10 to 15 years from now situation, patients and families know that's ridiculous. Right. And yet we're 
saying, do it, do it, as if somehow it makes sense. It doesn't make sense. It's a legal construct that was designed to help health professionals uh, not have to use their clinical judgment and communication skills. So while I believe it is very important for everyone to appoint someone that they trust. Like the healthcare pal returning. Right. To represent them if they can't make their own decisions. And and 95% of us are unable to make our own decisions at one point or another during a serious illness. So it might be your spouse. It might be one of one or all of your children. It might be your pastor. It might be your next door neighbor. Anyone you trust that would be able to speak for you if you couldn't speak for yourself. Everyone needs to do that. So I could walk out of this hotel room this morning and be hit by a truck. It happens. And be comatose. So my husband is appointed on a piece of paper as the person that I trust to stand in for me if I can't speak for myself. And not only that, he knows that if I'm in a persistent vegetative state, if I'm in a state where I will not not recover to be able to communicate with him and our kids and meaningfully recognize them, he knows that I want care only focused on my comfort in that situation. And I trust him to honor what I want, even though I know it will be very painful for him and our kids to do it. That is the end of my advanced care planning, right? That I appointed someone I trust and that I told my kids and my husband, if I am not there anymore as a person, my body is alive, but my spirit and my mind is not alive. For me, that is not a life worth living. I just want you to make very sure that I'm not in pain and I'm not miserable and make sure that I'm comfortable and then let nature take its course. And beyond that, I cannot predict the future. You have to have a conversation with your loved ones. If they, if you appoint someone and they don't know what you want, the burden on your loved ones is extremely heavy. Um, but I do feel you, you are right that I cannot predict a treatment that I will or won't have. And to revisit that um, on a yearly basis is, I, yeah, so what do I, why it's, would I do that? It's, you know, we're a society that is controlled by lawyers, and this is not hostility to lawyers, <laughs> but, you know, lawyers believe, and most politicians are lawyers, that if you sign a piece of paper and it's witnessed, the problem is fixed. Not true, right? Not. So medical care is messy. It's complicated. We don't know with certainty what the future is going to hold. I mean, I get these living wills from patients that say, I would never want to be on a ventilator. I would never want CPR. I would never want a feeding tube. And I say, wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. So say you needed to be on a ventilator for a couple of days to get over a pneumonia. you telling me you wouldn't want me to put you on a ventilator? Oh, no, I don't mean that. So, of course, people would want to be on a ventilator sure. if it could help them achieve a reasonable goal. So people should not be making decisions about individual treatments because it's not the treatment. It's what the treatment can accomplish for you or not that matters. So it's important to talk about what is, for me, a fate worse than death would be to be, you know, essentially gorked out a vegetable but mm-hmm. alive and draining my family's resources as only the shell of myself. 
I would much rather be dead than be remembered that way. So each one of us has to think about what is that situation. Under that situation, no ventilator, right. no feeding tube, um, no CPR. But, but if I'm in a situation where it's going to help me, damn right, I want you to resuscitate the hell out of me. Right, exactly. <laughs> and and that's, that's the thing is that, that this language is so confusing to the general public. And I, I do believe that healthcare power of attorney is, is the key. No matter 18 years and above, you, you, there's some things that if you can't talk, you need someone to be there to, to advocate and be someone who can help you through that. And 18 years is the number, right? That's when we let people drive. Well, they're making advanced care planning decisions at 16 with that little decision of, are you a donor? Right. So, and so I think, you know, when you think about the rate of motor vehicle accidents in young people that often result in permanent coma or massive traumatic brain injury. Really important. It is really important. When people get behind the wheel of a car to say, if that happens to me, yeah, I want you to keep me going for decades on a machine, you can say that. Or no, I don't. Exactly. Because your heartbroken parents will probably keep you going. Right. Forever. Right. Gosh, I am so happy you came to Wilmington. It's just an honor to meet you and be in your presence. And I know your patients, they're so lucky to have you as a clinician and a physician with them. And I'm so happy you came to Wilmington to be a part of helping us look at palliative care and hospice care in a different light and what you're doing. You're, you're changing how people are facing end of life. What a beautiful city you live in with so many beautiful people in it. Thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Have a safe trip back to New York City. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer. <laughs>